Hello, and welcome to a new season of the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I'm delighted to say that our numbers keep growing, so thank you for listening. And I'm also delighted that helping me kick off our third season, I'm joined by Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. Our conversation today is about how the MENA region is responding to the route of the West in Afghanistan. Sami, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bill. The Taliban victory, it's uh, ricocheted around the world and caused all sorts of repercussions already. But I want to focus on the fallout and implications for the MENA region. And I'm going to include Turkey as well in our conversation. But let us begin with Qatar, this very wealthy but also tiny state, just 300,000 citizens, has played a massive role in evacuations, but also is clearly of huge importance to Washington and, and here as well as we're seeing as, as the West tries to figure out what to do about the Taliban. So let's begin with Qatar and, and what they are, are accomplishing with their engagement. I think it's important to put the Qatari involvement into context, which is that there has been a general sense in Doha that the Biden wave has not brought about the expectations that they were hoping for. By that I mean they expected a complete transformation of the tide in their favor, and instead what they found was that Biden established some sort of equilibrium between them and the UAE, a sort of attitude of, listen, I'm not interested in your your, uh, disputes, I'm not interested in your arguments, find some way to settle it because I have no time to pay attention to them. So what we're seeing here, and, and the reason I mention that is because what we're seeing here is a competition on the part of the UAE and Qatar to win over Biden to win Biden's ear to improve their standing in Washington and that's why we're seeing both the UAE and Qatar go all out above and beyond in order to assist Biden with anything that he needs with regards to Afghanistan and this is the context within which we should look at Qatar's participation the first is that it successfully managed to maneuver itself to be the mediator between the Taliban and the US which was a phenomenal success diplomatically for Qatar Uh, it was worth remembering that the UAE was trying to navigate this very unique position but the Taliban preferred Qatar uh, over the UAE. In other words, the UAE itself had made overtures uh, to the Taliban, but Qatar beat the UAE in in, uh, obtaining this uh, mediator role. So now uh, Qatar is essentially the direct interlocutor between the Taliban and the US, especially in a climate in which Biden doesn't want to be seen publicly to be dealing directly uh, with the Taliban. And that only augments uh, Qatar's status, Qatar's value in the eyes of Biden, uh, uh, essentially rendering them uh, invaluable uh, with regards to Afghanistan as far as Afghanistan is concerned. This doesn't mean, of course, there aren't pitfalls for Qatar, but Qatar's role, Qatar's eagerness, Qatar's uh, uh, desire to be involved in Afghanistan falls within this framework of trying to win back ground in Washington that it has lost to the UAE. Uh, and, and one of the things that's, that's, that's worth noting is that Uh, The dilemma that Qatar, of course, has, as in to highlight some of the pitfalls, is that with this U.S. withdrawal now, what is the future of the Al-Udaid base in Qatar, which which underpins Qatar's ability to exert itself? But the direct answer to your question, or or directly addressing your question, uh, Qatar believes now that uh, it has Biden's ear, that it's uh, winning uh, points now in Washington, and I think that's a primary driver in its approach to Afghanistan. Well, now, you've mentioned the UAE, and of course... uh... Abu Dhabi's crown prince and de facto ruler Mohammed bin Zayed really has a a flea in his ear about political Islamism. Um, How do you think 
he is is looking at this situation with the Taliban. I think it's important to look at the MENA region for what it is today as opposed to what it was 10 years ago. Uh, what we're seeing today is Qatar and Turkey give up on the Arab Spring and essentially settle with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Some people are calling it a stalemate. I argue that it's a victory for the UAE-Saudi-Egypt axis on the basis that they set out in 2011 to crush the Arab Spring. They set out in 2011 to prevent uh, any change in the status quo in the region. And today we're seeing a return to that status quo, a recognition of the uh, relative permanence of the authoritarian regimes and we're sort of seeing Turkey and Qatar saying well we tried uh, let's shake hands now with bin Zayed and, and, and Mohammed bin Salman and UAE is saying yes it's back to the status quo let's shake hands with Erdogan uh, and with Qatar and the reason I mention this is that if we're looking at the potential impact of what the Taliban have achieved in Afghanistan how does that affect Haftar's position in which he continues to have a significant military power he looks likely uh, uh, to launch a military campaign whenever he wishes. Khalifa Haftar, the uh, Libyan warlord backed by the United Arab Emirates, defeated on the battlefield with the help of Turkey and now resurging with a little international interest in, uh, in what's uh, happening. There is international apathy towards what's taking place in Libya and there is international fatigue towards anything geared towards uh, any democratic uh, transition. When you look at Tunisia, it's in the midst of a coup by Qais Saeed. When you look at Egypt, Sisi remains uh, ever dominant and even the Islamist movement is no longer at a level in which it can even launch some sort of resistance uh, towards uh, Sisi. If we're looking at Mohammed bin Salman, you have swathes of people who are now uh, in prison. You have Russia and the US welcoming the social engineering uh, reforms uh, or the other thing that is worth mentioning is that while Afghanistan uh, the Taliban's victory over the US uh, is being celebrated in so far it is a it is a defeat for the US which is seen as the guarantor of authoritarianism and corruption uh, in the region I'm talking popular perception we don't uh, realities might be different or people might argue about the realities but we're talking about the popular perception this idea of the US being a guarantor or being the facilitator of authoritarianism uh, while we see people celebrating uh, the defeat of the US and I separate that from celebrating a Taliban victory I do think there is a third way in that you celebrate the defeat of the US without celebrating the Taliban and having reasonable concerns over how the Taliban might progress but I think that uh, when we're even though the Muslim world is celebrating that if you're looking at means by which that can be channeled uh, in the MENA region the reality is that the MENA region uh, the, the new pillars of the new status quo uh, I think are becoming increasingly embedded and firmly in place uh, and therefore I don't think necessarily that Mohammed bin Zayed uh, is necessarily especially concerned about the ramifications of the uh, Taliban primarily because the two lightning rods for that political Islam, Qatar and Turkey, are clearly moving away from those ideological bonds. They, we see Erdogan now with very um, positive rhetoric with regards to the UAE, saying that turbulence happens in bilateral relations. I look forward to meeting Mohammed bin Zayed. UAE is going to invest in Turkey. And we're seeing the same coming uh, from the UAE. So if you're Mohammed bin Zayed and you're worried about the Taliban, uh, the reality is you're thinking, okay, where's the lightning rod? The lightning rod no longer exists in the MENA region, either in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood or in the form of uh, the international backers. So uh, I think the, the Muhammad, any suggestion that Mohammed bin Zayed is worried about it is over-exaggerated.
limited and I do think that the Taliban in the position that they're in where they badly need investment, they're desperate for international recognition, I do think that we're going to see a more tempered approach uh, uh, to their foreign policy. We've seen now they're getting closer to China at the expense of the Uyghurs uh, and therefore I don't think it's uh, out of uh, uh, imagine out of the imagination that perhaps the, the UAE itself would find good ties with the Taliban and find some way to incorporate this Taliban victory within this framework of the, this status quo that is being agreed upon between UAE, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Mm. Well, look, uh, President Erdogan is keeping his country's embassy up and running in Kabul and he, he says he's cautiously optimistic. You've spoken about Qatar and the political gains it's made. Uh, as a result of its efforts um, with the situation. Do you think Turkey is poised to gain as well some political capital from the U.S.'s great debacle? I think that uh, Turkey stands to gain in in a number of ways. I think first and foremost, uh, the Turkey now is suddenly a strategic partner as described by Blinken I think a couple of weeks ago he came out and called Turkey a strategic partner which is a language that hasn't been hasn't been used for some time uh, with regards to uh, bilateral relations between the US and between uh, Turkey Turkey is offering to operate their airport in a manner that helps to facilitate uh, NATO interests and that in the beginning irked uh, the Taliban, particularly given that Erdogan tried to unilaterally negotiate control of the airport with Biden as opposed to with the Taliban. And now the Taliban have taken over Kabul. Erdogan is strong arming the Taliban and saying to them, listen, uh, you guys can't run the airport by yourself. Nobody will recognize you if you run it by yourself. I won't help you with international recognition if you don't uh, let me uh, run it. I want my troops there. The Taliban are saying we don't want your troops there. We want technical assistance. Erdogan is saying I'm not helping you unless you allow my troops uh, to be there. And at the same time, Erdogan is going to Washington and saying, look, I'm, I'm about to negotiate with the Taliban a deal to look after to the airport. What can you give me in terms of logistical financial and political support. And I think Erdogan has exposed the Taliban's weaknesses with this approach in that it's clear that the Taliban are worried about internal backlash uh, if they allow foreign troops there and also reveal the Taliban uh, desperation for international recognition that Macron uh, recently stated that even if we work with the Taliban, that doesn't mean that we're going to recognize it and all recognize uh, its uh, government. So Turkey now is sort of forcing itself uh, uh, in Afghanistan. It's putting its foot down uh, uh, in terms of the airport. It's pitching itself now as this new valuable ally uh, for the US in Afghanistan, a way to temper uh, the US uh, defeat and offer it a backdoor by which it can continue to remain relevant in Afghanistan as China and Russia uh, essentially uh, start uh, digging their fingers into Afghanistan in order to try to take a piece of the cake or a piece of the pie. Uh, and I think in, in this regard, uh, Erdogan now suddenly finds himself uh, more relevant to the US in a manner in which he hasn't been in the past two years. So Turkey uh, stands to gain. It stands to it has a similar position to Qatar as an interlocutor. Uh, the Taliban, even though they've said that Turkey was part of the NATO invasion, they've hinted that they want good ties with Erdogan. But on a basis uh, of uh, equality as opposed to a powerful Turkey versus a weak Taliban, uh, but uh, it, it remains to be seen that the latest news that has emerged is that uh, Erdogan is insistent on his troops and he will not uh, take control of the airport without Biden's permission, while the Taliban desperately want technical assistance to run the airport. And it's very interesting in that Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al Thani 
the Qatari foreign minister in an interview with the Financial Times said uh, that he's been urging the Taliban to accept the presence of foreign troops, i.e. Turkey, uh, if they want international recognition. So you can see there, there is this aversion from the Taliban, but Turkey digging its heels uh, and a sort of uh, who will blink first with regards to it. Hmm. Yeah, and, and th- there's already a process in play uh, whereby the Saudis, the Emiratis, Egypt were moving very clearly into multi- multipolarity, no longer seeing America as their greatest friend and ally. Will this defeat, you could argue America's greatest defeat, simply accelerate that process now? I think uh, your question is well put in terms of will it accelerate that process. I do think that in 2011, I think the Gulf states all came to this sort of idea that the Americans could no longer be trusted. And I think Obama himself writes in his memoirs that Bin Zaid said this to him directly, that if you do not rescue Mubarak or if you do not rescue uh, these regimes, that it will become abundantly clear that we cannot trust you anymore. And I think Gulf states approach this in different ways in that the UAE decided to try to empower its military and decided to try to buy the high-tech weapons and part of normalization of ties with Israel was also to secure F-35s in order to create a state-of-the-art army. Saudi Arabia refused to believe that the US could actually withdraw from the region and sort of tried to woo the US into staying in the region and trying to win back uh, the US. Qatar, which panicked over its losing ground in Washington, decided to spend billions in expanding uh, Al-Udaid base almost as if it was betting that Perhaps uh, the U.S. would uh, be convinced to stay longer and that Qatar is so strategic that even if there's a U.S. withdrawal, they will at least stay in Qatar so as to protect protect Qatar from Saudi Arabia or at least help Qatar to maintain independence from Saudi Arabia, which is what the purpose of Al-Udaid primarily was when it was established in, in, in the, in the mid-90s. Uh, But I think also uh, uh, we've seen a gradual diversification. When Qatar brought the Turkish military base, it was because they didn't trust uh, the US. It was because they didn't believe that Al-Udaid would serve uh, its purpose. I do think that what we're seeing in Afghanistan, I don't think it will necessarily accelerate the process. I do think that perhaps uh, the Gulf states are still are in the process of how do we adapt to a region in which the U.S. is no longer dominant. And I don't think, aside from the UAE, I don't think the others really have any genuine, credible answers over how to address this. But rather, I do think perhaps that uh, with the withdrawal of the U.S., uh, we're now seeing this sort of, uh, what do we do now? And I think this is uh, this confusion is what essentially uh, is resulting in this sort of paralysis that we're seeing in terms of foreign policy and also in terms of this stalemate that we're seeing, this sort of neither Qatar nor Saudi Arabia can trust Biden or trust Washington, so let's get together and sit down and discuss how we can move forward. Uh, and, and I think this is uh, perhaps the biggest implication of what's taking place uh, in Afghanistan in that suddenly those who built their entire security apparatus on the basis that Washington would be the guarantor of security suddenly find themselves vulnerable. And the reality is that uh, in this situation, what, ang- what, what causes angst for Saudi Arabia is that Uh, Turkey appears to be the military power that is capable of at least providing some sort of new security agreements, but Saudi doesn't want Turkey to be that power. And I think the point that I want to make is that uh, it's not necessarily that Afghanistan demonstrated to the Gulf that the US is no longer the power it was. That was demonstrated in 2011 when the US didn't get involved uh, in rescuing the authoritarian regimes. But rather what we're seeing is uh, the, the, that in 10 years, the Gulf still doesn't have an answer 
for how to address a retreating US. And I think that is the calamity for the likes of Saudi Arabia and Qatar, albeit not necessarily for the UAE, which has spent the last 10 years building alliances in Libya with Haftar in Tunisia, with uh, Qais Saeed and Abir Musi in Egypt, with Sisi in Ethiopia, with Abe Ahmed in Somalia, uh, with various different factions. The UAE is sort of saying, I can't rely on the US anymore, but I'm a small country, I'm a rich country, I can develop allies everywhere. If the US are going to withdraw and I no longer have that protection, then I must be involved in every single issue in the region in order to guarantee my future security and future protection. And I think this is why many people call Mohammed bin Zayed, and I use this word very reluctantly and 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 and, and, and very I'm very uh, disappointed to say it, in that this is why bin Zayed is rated as the most shrewd operator in the region. He saw many years ago that the US would no longer be trusted and he has adapted accordingly and the UAE today has a hand in most of the regional issues, if not all of them, as a valuable partner by virtue of the alliances that it has built, which for the UAE is going to act as the alternative to the reliance on the US security agreements. And I think that's what bin Salman is slowly realizing in terms of his rhetoric towards the Houthis and towards uh, Syria's Assad, while Qatar is panicking because Qatar is not entirely sure uh, how it can adapt. It doesn't want to rely heavily on the Turks, even though that's an alternative. And that's why we see it today still trying desperately to win Biden's ear and to convince Biden that if you withdraw from Saudi and the UAE, don't withdraw from Qatar, please. Mm. All right, let, let's look at the security front. Uh, do, do you see the Taliban victory empowering MENA jihadist movements? Um, in North Africa, you have IS affiliates operating in North Sinai, Libya, Tunisia. Are we going to see uh, an igniting of jihadist uh, uprisings? I've read about the, the potential for a jihadist uh, uprisings, but I, I think that takes away from the core of, of, of the matter with regards to military uh, uprisings or armed uprisings in the region. Armed uprisings are not going to be taking place because the Taliban uh, defeated the US, but rather because of the absence of a genuine alternative through which people can actually uh, uh, express their grievances against authoritarian and repressive uh, regimes. And I think the reason why I mention this is that uh, when we look at the emergence of ISIS or we look at the emergence of Al-Qaeda or the like, uh, a lot of it uh, stems from the absence of any justice, the absence uh, of any uh, genuine empowerment of citizens, the absence of any uh, recourse for uh, civilians who remain under those rules. That's not justifying what ISIS or Al-Qaeda are doing. But my point here is that uh, what the Taliban have demonstrated is something that is becoming uh, prominent in the region in terms of their viewpoint over how they might be able to achieve change, which is that when the region did it through uh, legitimate protests, through Arab Spring, when they brought down authoritarian regimes, when they established democratic transitions, the attitude of Europe and the US was not bravo, you established a democratic transition and exerted the will of the people. The stance of the EU and the US was you voted wrong. When you vote for Islamists, you voted wrong. And because you voted wrong, we cannot support your democratic transition. We cannot protect it. We cannot help you to allow it to progress and therefore when Sisi does a military coup in Egypt, we, uh, when we consider our interests, we believe that Sisi is better than people deciding uh, for Mohamed Morsi 
or the Muslim Brotherhood. And when you are ready to decide correctly, then we, uh, we might consider intervening to prevent military coups uh, in the future. When we see in Tunisia, Qaisai decided to suspend the constitution and the US, Biden writes a handwritten letter and everybody thinks that Saeed is going to reverse course, but instead he extends emergency power. It's clear that the US is not necessarily interested in protecting the Tunisian democratic process, but rather that, listen, it's a small country. Yes, it's a democracy, but what's our interest here? And I think this is what uh, the Taliban uh, victory against the US has uh, emphasized, has, has, has really uh, entrenched or cemented in that it's not that it's cementing the idea of jihadist movements or it's cementing the idea of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I think that's a very narrow way to look at, to look at it, especially given that ISIS and Al-Qaeda were there even before the Taliban had defeated the US. They were already operating in Libya and in, in Iraq. And in Iraq, they established their own, what they call the caliphate uh, in Iraq without the need for the US to be defeated anywhere by the Taliban. So to say it's going to lead to jihadist movements uh, is a historical the jihadist movements are already there rather what the taliban victory against the u.s demonstrates for the likes of haftar in libya for the likes of uh, sisi in egypt for the likes of any movement that wants to come to power in mina region what the taliban have demonstrated is if you have power and you force yourself on the population and you manage to cement yourself and entrench yourself in the institutions the u.s will recognize you europe will recognize you that at at the end of the day it's not about women's rights or human's rights or human rights or democracy or any of the like what matters is power and your utility to me to achieve the interests if you can achieve that then i will recognize you that's the lesson that the taliban have taught uh, the region in that you can go to washington eu and pitch democracy and pitch human rights but they but the eu and the us will not come to the aid of you building this democracy or protecting it they will only do so insofar as they interests are concerned whether that's right or wrong is irrelevant but that is the primary perception that's the primary message that everybody in the region is receiving it has nothing to do with jihadists nothing to do with terrorism or isis or al-qaeda the message from the taliban victory in afghanistan is that if you want the us and the eu to recognize you and stand by you and and, and essentially support you you need to have power you need to impose yourself and it has nothing to do with the pr rhetoric of human rights or democracy or the like. I think that's the lesson and I think any in, any uh, veering towards jihadist movements I think is insincere, it's narrow and it takes away from what is staring us in the face in that when it comes to US policy in the region it has never been about human rights, it's always been about interest. That's what Bin Zayed today appreciates, that's what Sisi appreciates, that's what the Muslim Brotherhood appreciates and that's what the MENA people appreciate in that the US cannot be relied upon for the democratic transition. If we're going to have democracy we need power with it to resist the US not work with them in order to establish democracy hmm. so you have the authoritarians in power confirmed in their view that they must continue in the repressive ways and the people that they're repressing thinking we need the power to get out from under the authoritarian rulers it sounds like a recipe for pretty turbulent times in the MENA region so let me ask you then about Mohammed bin Salman. Will this jihadist win in Afghanistan affect him? After all, he's denounced the hardcore vision of Islam that Taliban profess in favor of what he calls a modern Islam. Does he face any threats from jihadists in his own country after the Taliban victory? 
I think that Bin Salman's uh, grip on Saudi Arabia is ironclad. I think that when you see the, all the religious scholars who are put, have been put into prison, when you see uh, how uh, the slightest criticism is punishable or the slightest tweet is punishable by prison, I do think that the Bin Salman is, has essentially succeeded in suffocating or, 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 or putting Saudi society into a suffocating chokehold. And this is why I think that when we're looking at what's taking place in Saudi Arabia or Mohammed bin Salman's approach uh, to the Taliban, I don't think necessarily that he's worried about any insurgency taking place uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, given that he feels genuinely comfortable with regards to the extent of his security uh, crackdown. I also think that Mohammed bin Salman believes that with his rhetoric of moderate Islam, which in reality has very little to do with Islam, he, when, when you look at his uh, de-Islamization of Saudi Arabia, the aim is not to achieve moderate Islam, but rather to remove it completely from political and social life and relegate it to the personal sphere, a sort of, uh, if, you, if you like, a late enlightenment or, or, or an implementation of the enlightenment period in, in Europe. And I use that between quotation marks, uh, uh, this idea that, you know, we can establish some sort of secularism in Saudi Arabia. And Bin Salman believes that this is such a prize for the US and Europe and for France and for Macron that he will have their firm support against any potential insurgency or jihadists. So in fact, I think that Bin Salman believes that the Taliban victory in Afghanistan may well work in his favor and may well amplify his utility in the eyes of Europe and in the eyes of the US, especially uh, uh, given the, the, the turbulence that he's had in relations with them as a result with, of Khashoggi uh, and the human rights uh, uh, abuses. So I think that if you look at it, actually, it's, it's the opposite. The Taliban victory in Afghanistan doesn't actually worry Mohammed bin Salman. Rather, it's a gift. Uh, for Mohammed bin Salman in terms of his utility in the eyes of a US foreign policy. Uh, and in fact, if, if uh, the reality is that even if an insurgency emerged in Saudi Arabia, uh, the likelihood is, he, is it would cement bin Salman's legitimacy rather than uh, uh, undermine it. Mm, okay. I want to ask you too about uh, recognition of the Taliban regime. The Saudis and the Emiratis were two of uh, three countries the other being Pakistan, to recognize the original Taliban regime back in 1996. Do you see uh, the Gulf states uh, recognizing the Taliban regime quickly? Uh, and, and what about other uh, MENA region states? I mean, will there be a kind of a, a stampede uh, towards recognizing the Taliban? Or will there be, as uh, as Erdogan said, uh, a cautious approach and, and, and a holding back uh, to see if uh, some of the more severe aspects of the Taliban rule can be ameliorated, a kind of carrot and stick approach. I don't think it, it has uh, international recognition has anything to do with what the Taliban might or might not do. I don't think the actions of the Taliban will determine whether they get international recognition or not. I think that for the Gulf states or for Turkey to recognize the Taliban, I think none of them will do it until... Uh, they are comfortable that there will not be any repercussions from Washington. They will not do so until it's clear exactly what Biden wants with regards to Afghanistan. Because at the moment, it doesn't seem that like Biden has any plan whatsoever over how he's going to proceed on Afghanistan. And the reality is that uh, there is a theory that Biden has two choices in that either he works with the Taliban and recognize them or he suffocates them with crippling sanctions in the manner that the US has done with Iran or in the manner that the US did uh, with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And therefore, Afghanistan remains this permanent uh, sandbox or this permanent uh, hub 
uh, for insecurity and instability that won't necessarily affect the US directly, but will certainly affect Pakistan, affect China, affect Russia, all countries that the US is very antagonistic towards and the US is not necessarily on the best of terms with. And this is why I think that Qatar for is, is sort of uh, on this very fine line balancing act in that it's telling the Taliban, I'm on your side, I'm your ally, I can help you, I can help you talk to the Americans. But when the Taliban are saying, okay, so recognize us, Qatar is saying, no, no, wait, I need to see first what Biden intends before I can recognize you. Turkey doesn't want to take control of the airport, doesn't want to recognize the Taliban until he's clear what Biden wants to do. There is this fear that for all the talk about the US being defeated, and I do believe that they've been defeated, the US still remains a force to be reckoned with and that Biden may well lash out against the Taliban and Afghanistan in a sort of revenge uh, against uh, the Taliban. And of course, uh, one of perhaps the darkest highlights of U.S. policy is that in response to the death of those Marines by ISIS-K, Biden decided to launch a drone strike that killed Afghan children who had nothing to do with ISIS-K and, and celebrated it as a reaction. This idea that uh, the details don't matter to the Americans or to uh, the American media or to uh, Biden. It doesn't matter if it's Afghan kids who are getting killed. What matters is the demonstration uh, of power. So the short answer to your question is, is basically that uh, the uh, Taliban are desperate for international recognition. They've tempered their rhetoric in order to achieve international recognition. They've uh, tempered their approach to women's rights in order to achieve that recognition. They've tempered their approach uh, towards uh, their vision of Islamic law in order to achieve that international recognition. But the reality is that when you're looking at the stance of Qatar, UAE, Saudi, Turkey, even Pakistan, which is the prime ally of the Taliban, Pakistan does not want to recognize the Taliban officially until it sure what Biden will do because if Biden does decide to sanction the Taliban Pakistan doesn't want to be dragged into these sanctions either at the time in which it's suffering economically so it's sort of this very awkward situation in that the Taliban badly want it but nobody will give it until it's clear what Biden intends for Afghanistan and that's not clear for anyone yet mm, that's very interesting Sami that uh, despite this huge defeat that everyone is still waiting to see what Washington will do because as you're, you're quite right they're still the most massive military power in the world. Uh, finally uh, given the anxieties that the Gulf states and Israel have about Iran and Biden's avowed intention to return to the JCPOA the nuclear deal do you think events in Afghanistan will have any impact on whether or not Joe Biden achieves his goal? I think that uh the events in Afghanistan, the the thing that worries the allies the most uh, in the Gulf is the manner in which the U.S. has withdrawn and the 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 stubborn approach that Biden has in terms of not recognizing how bad the withdrawal was, the withdrawal was, and not recognizing. Uh, the failure of the U.S. in Afghanistan, but rather insisting that there was some sort of success in it. And the sort of Biden's very cold-hearted approach in that, listen, it's not for me to be there. I don't want my troops to be there. It's not in U.S. interest, so I'm leaving. I don't care what happens next. I don't care about the fallout. It's this attitude that terrifies Tel Aviv, that terrifies Riyadh, this idea that Biden ignored even phone calls from allies from Europe who told him, what on earth are you doing, Biden? This idea that the U.S. Uh, under the Biden administration, at least, and the U.S. in recent times, is no longer interested in a multilateral approach towards its foreign policy, but uniquely about America first, both under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration. It's all about American interests first and foremost. And the reason that relates to the JCPOA 
way is because for the U.S. interest, they want to achieve a framework of cooperation with Iran whereby U.S. interests and Iranian interests are mutually respected. This idea that we couldn't defeat the Iranians, come, let's come to the table Let's come up with a framework of cooperation and let's rehabilitate you into the international community, which is what Iran wants and which is what the US wants, but which inevitably comes at the expense of the Gulf allies and indeed of Tel Aviv, because such a deal entrenches Iranian gains in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen. It's essentially the US saying, I will no longer commit to pushing you back. You can have those states, you can have those gains, uh, but just let's come to an agreement. Don't touch US interests and you can do what you like afterwards. That's the terrifying fear for Riyadh and for uh, Doha and for Tel Aviv. This idea that US interests require an agreement with Iran, but US interests in this case means the detriment of Tel Aviv, the detriment detriment of Saudi Arabia and even in the relationship with Tel Aviv we're seeing that the US now is pushing back whereas before Tel Aviv would try to sabotage the JCPOA and the like and Netanyahu would go to uh, Washington and say guys please stand with me we're seeing Biden essentially say to Tel Aviv stay in your lane stay in your place I am the United States of America you're not the one who controls this White House you listen to what I tell you it's not the other way around I want this JCPOA and you must align accordingly and that sort of put Tel Aviv in to shock at a time in which they're struggling from an economic crisis and in a time in which we see uh, Iran sort of encroaching on its borders. And this is why we're seeing this very, uh, the reality is we're seeing this very new US approach, this US moving away from being the global policeman, from being the global leader, more towards acting very similar to Russia and China, very uniquely pursuing its own interests, even if that's at the expense of allies. The US or Biden believes they're no longer in a position to be able to sort of implement this multilateral approach that's what Afghanistan has put on full display it's not that Afghanistan caused something but rather the events of Afghanistan put what everybody was whispering behind closed doors into the public it's now there for everybody to see for 10 years people were saying that the US is no longer the power it was Afghanistan laid those truths bare in front of everyone and it's sort of the cold water on everybody's face where people are now saying well if that's the case what next and it's the uncertainty that is causing the panic what do we do now that Biden no longer cares about the multilateral world order that's what terrifies uh, everyone and I think when we look at the JCPOA, I think what Afghanistan demonstrates is that Biden is prepared to sign the JCPOA irrespective of what Tel Aviv and Riyadh think. And that's why Riyadh, of course, is going to the Iranians and saying, come, let's talk, come, let's come to some sort of agreement in a panic to adapt to this new reality. Sammy, thank you so much. Fascinating. Thank you for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. And thank you again for the invitation. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. For academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Next week, my guest is Magid Mandur, a writer for Open Democracy and Sada. We'll be taking a long look at the military-industrial dictatorship President Sisi is building in Egypt. Hope you can join us. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.